Thanks for saying hi to somebody. And uh, as you sit down, just a show of hands. Uh, would you just raise your hand if that's the first person that you've talked to outside of who lives in your dwelling in the last week? Four days, three days? No, okay, some, okay, not many. Well, hey, this is, as, as Maya said, there's, there's something about just being together uh, again. And she actually said hi to people online, but we've got a little glitch again with, with online. Uh, I'm sure it's temperature related, but um, so we're saying hello to you online later. So if you're watching later, we're sorry that we'll figure this out soon. But um, yeah, for those of us that get to be here in person, it's so good to be with people other than my family. No, I mean, to, I mean with, with everybody. Like, uh, no, we've, we've survived decently. Uh, I know that's not true for everyone. It's been, it's been hard in so many ways and so disruptive. Uh, and so it's really, really good to be together. I want to, I, I have a, kind of a mix. I was saying this with our team that was praying before our gathering, um, just a, a mix of kind of experiences and emotions that go along with what this last week has been. So I want to share a real positive one first. Uh, some great news, if you have not heard, um, yet, uh, one of our pastors, uh, Connor Durr, uh, is married to Chloe, and they have a soon-to-be four-year-old named Simon, who now, as of yesterday morning, has two younger brothers. Yeah. Uh, which is such wonderful, great news. It's just news that's about 10 weeks early. So, um, they were technically 29 weeks and six days. Uh, and uh, Chloe gave birth, uh, and they are fine. They are in the NICU, and they will be there for a little while, but they are doing well. I'm told uh, Abby and I got to, to see Connor and Chloe, but not the twins, uh, yesterday morning, and that was a gift. And, uh, yeah, so that's a whole new adventure for them. So if uh, so, we won't see Connor for a little bit, and uh, we're celebrating him and Chloe and their family five now. So names are Ralph and Sonny. Ralph and Sonny. And so I don't have pictures. I'm going to let uh, Connor, who does all of our social media and stuff, curate the best first presentation of them. And he can send that along or come do it himself. But um, I'm, I don't have a picture and I'm not going to do that. Ralph and Sonny are here and, and doing well. So that's, that's really good news that we're celebrating. Um, I don't know if you know, but there's, there's something. We, we come from all over the Portland-Vancouver area and we gather in this particular place on Sunday mornings. Uh, and then we go out and go about our lives. And uh, as we start, before we open up scripture this morning, I just want to pray for our immediate neighborhood. Um, if you have not read the news or been paying attention, uh, about 20 blocks down Sandy uh, from us uh, was a, a church, is a church. Uh, the building um, had a fire uh, about a week ago. And there were uh, two pastors, uh, two sisters who were in their 70s pastoring that church and lived on the premise and lost their lives in the fire. Um, and I didn't know much about the church. I did not know them personally, but I went on to their website and one of the sisters preached two weeks ago and then passed away in, in, a, in a fire uh, a week ago. And so just want to pray for that church, Word and Spirit Church. I don't know anything about the church. I just know that they've lost um, two uh, beloved leaders there and uh, are obviously going to struggle through rebuilding and fire and all that. And the second thing uh, is this, a few blocks from here, I don't know exactly where, but I know it's pretty close. Uh, three people lost their life in, uh, when a, a power line fell uh, on their car. And so I don't know if you've read that story, um, but three adults passed away. A nine-month-old lived because an 18-year-old neighbor saw it happen and ran out and, and grabbed him. And so uh, it's just, and there's different levels of loss and struggle when we have a 
Arctic storm like we just had, but for our immediate neighborhood to go through that kind of loss and, and shock, um, I just wonder if we could, we could just spend some time praying right now for our immediate neighborhood, knowing that there's things we could pray for all over our city and throughout all of our lives, but I want to pray for those two things specifically uh, and this immediate neighborhood, and then we'll open up scripture together. God, as we are gathered here in this room, we are very well aware that you are here, um, that we have entered into your time and your space and your moment, and, um, and so we are grateful to be in your presence. Um, and God, as we come out of this past week with all of the uh, unexpected ice and uh, rescheduling and inconvenience, uh, we're aware that some have suffered and lost much more than others. And as we think of this immediate neighborhood um, that you love, that you care about, that you've placed churches in and you've placed your people in to, uh, to love this part of the city and these neighbors. Um, I'm thinking about the two women that were shepherding a church down the street um, who you've taken home to be with you. Um, we pray for their church, for their recovery, for their grieving process, uh, and for the, the stories that will come out of this, of the work that you will do, and we're trusting that you will do that. And God, for the families that have lost loved ones in this freak accident with the power line, uh, and for the 18-year-old young woman who, who ran out and helped save a nine-month-old. God, it's hard to understand why that happens and how people will wrestle through that grief and loss. And um, I just ask that you would show up in surprising ways in their life, have no idea if anyone involved in that situation knows you and is walking with you, but would you show up in an unmistakable way where you, your name is actually claimed and known um, and in the midst of significant loss and grief uh, that Jesus, you would show up and people will come to know you even through this. I mean, specifically for the nine-month-old who's growing up, um, would you have your hand on his life? And God, for our church, we seek to be a light in this neighborhood and in this city. Um, we're so grateful that there are so many churches spread across, not just our neighborhood, but our city, uh, and ask that you would work um, in significant ways in this year. And Holy Spirit, in this moment right now, would you work and move and have your way? Uh, we come in from all different kinds of weeks and ask that you would help us to take a deep breath to pause and to receive what it is you have for us today. And Jesus, we know that it's your words, and so would we be able to hear your words as we read your word uh, this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one, one more thing I, I, I forgot. Can we uh, just say thanks to Ben, who is leading us in, in worship this morning? So, um, uh, ben is a, a friend I've known for about uh, four or five years. Uh, he is a, a professor of theater uh, at George Fox University out in Newburgh. Um, he's born and raised in the Portland area, and uh, not born, raised, I believe. And, uh, and he's also uh, my anonymous, and I asked him for permission to share this. He's my anonymous theater friend. Um, because all, he's also a, an actor in, in theaters across Portland, previously Seattle, and now, and now here. And so, um, yeah. So Ben, uh, you're my quasi-famous person friend that I get to claim. So thanks for being here. He's a part of Grace City, which is, how old's Grace City? How many years? Five. 
five. Grace City was planted about five years ago from a church in Corvallis. is up in kind of deep northeast, North Portland. Uh, great, great church there. Been going for about five years. And so thanks for, thanks for being here and leading us, leading us this morning. Appreciate you. Uh, we started a series last, uh, actually two weeks ago. We skipped last week, if you didn't know. If you showed up, I'm sorry, you were here by yourself. We are a people who, uh, we are a people who, and um, w- the thing we said two weeks ago as we started this series is that uh, we cannot help but fill in that blank. Uh, and we fill in the blank uh, in a lot of different ways. And what we want to do is be looking at scripture and saying, what is God's words that he puts in there? What is the what this description? What is the call that he says he, that he has for us, not specifically as individuals and then also as a, as a church, when, when we're able to see, wait, we are a people who, and then we fill in the blank. And one of the things that we started with a couple weeks ago is to say that um, whether you're aware of it or not, or even if you believed me when I shared this, but brain science has shown that we actually answer this question six times every second which is actually faster than we can think. So just sit on that for a moment and think about that. But we're searching for an answer to this, and we're answering these questions of who am I, like identity questions, and, and how do my people act? How do, how do I behave? And these things are actually part of our very character, and it's shown in how we behave. And Jesus has some very specific answers for what goes in that blank, and we want to look at his life and how he's calling us to be a people who live in certain kinds of, of ways. And as Jesus talked about it, and as we read in Scripture, the thing that Jesus is saying is he's inviting us to live in a distinct and different kind of way than the rest of the world. And the reason he's doing that is to say he's trying to bring a new kind of life to this world. His word for it is a kingdom. He's bringing in a kingdom, and it started with Jesus, and he's inviting us to live into that, which is like living into a different world in this world, which is why when we know and follow Jesus and we become more and more like him, we look very different than the world around us. And so to live into a kingdom kind of life involves us changing and becoming more like Jesus, which involves character change. And character is, here's a, just an easy definition if you want to kind of wrap your mind around it or kind of note this, is that our character, and there's a lot of different ways to think about character and say, what kind of person am I? Is it the kind of person that I am when no one else sees? And that's a, that's a helpful definition. But our character, and this is, I think, again, really helpful, is our embedded instantaneous, automatic responses to our relational environment. So here it is. How do we automatically respond to situations? So often we respond and we say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I had done this instead, which is good, but it also is revealing of this is where I'm at right now. It's our instantaneous, automatic responses to our relational environment, what's going on around us. And what it does is it actually reveals what's in our heart. And so I shared uh, two just, just wonderful, shining examples of my own life a couple weeks ago about the first time I punched somebody and the first time I said the F word. Because they were instantaneous. They just came out. And again, if you weren't here, just to, just to clear, clarify, it's the only time I've ever punched somebody. <laughs> but that revealed my character at that point in my life. They were pre-high school, if that helps you think any better of me. But, but it revealed my character. And so as we think both on an individual level and on a church level, the kind of people that we want to be, Jesus has some answers to this. And so last week we started with, we are a people who love, obey, and imitate Jesus. Again, for some of us, you you read that and you go, that's me. I love Jesus, I obey Jesus, and I imitate Jesus, like most of the time. And others of you say this and you go, oh, wow, I'm not even close. Like that's like, a, that's like a thing I just heard and I want to put out there and live into that and become that. That's great. It's aspirational. 
that we are a people who aspire to be ones who love, obey, and imitate Jesus. That's a trajectory of our life. This is where we believe we want to go and where Jesus wants to take us, and that's a, a good thing. So we want to add to it over the next number of weeks. And for this week, we're going to add one that I think is pretty obvious, but I want us to talk about it together this morning and look at the scripture together. The second one is we are a people who practice grace. We are people who practice grace. As we love, obey, and imitate Jesus, we will also be a people who practice grace. Now, what I want to do this morning together is, is kind of three things. One is first, I just, want us to, I just want us to look at Scripture and talk about the word grace for a little bit. And, and the reason I want to do that is because we, uh, we might not all mean the same thing. We might have an understanding, kind of a preloaded assumption about what grace is that doesn't line up with what the Bible describes as grace. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time making sure we understand what grace is from a biblical perspective. So when Jesus is talking about grace and his first followers in the first church are talking about grace, that we, we understand that. The second thing is I want to look at how Jesus modeled a life that is practicing grace. And Jesus modeled these things. As we work through these weeks, we are a people who, we want Jesus to be on our example, and so we want to look at his life of how he practiced grace with those around him. Because he, he modeled it, he embedded within a community, and he lived in a certain way that we can actually emulate and imitate. And then the last thing I want to do is just talk about how we can do this with others in the here and now. So understanding grace, how Jesus modeled it, and then how we do it in the here and now. So uh, here's, a, here's a simple just beginning definition. I want to look at kind of two, two really just short definitions. The first definition of grace that I want to start with is undeserved favor. And so some of you might have had that one preloaded, and you're like, oh, good, I, I got it right, and congratulations. Feel good about yourself. Undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor. And there's a, a number of places in Scripture. I want to go to uh, a, a couple that are from a guy named Paul, whose first name was Saul, but then he was transformed by Jesus, and then he went by Paul. And he wrote a lot of the New Testament. And Paul was a guy that if, if we were to, to like meet him in our culture and setting right now, um, we, would, we would probably say that he is privileged, regardless of what you think about that word or all the different ways that it's used. He was a, he was a person of privileged. Now, Paul, again, he was born, given name Saul, and, and changed and given a new name by Jesus and, and uh, named Paul. But Paul uh, came from a, a family where he had two citizenships. He was a, he was a, a Jewish uh, citizen of Israel, and then he was also a Roman citizen, which is, which is good status. It's a good good thing to have. He had both of those. So that in and of itself was a kind of a place of, of privilege. Uh, he was of means. He had decent money. He was educated. Um, he had the best education. Not only was he educated, but he excelled at education. And so Paul was a guy who was kind of above all of his peers. Um, he advanced faster, and he was brighter, and he had more opportunities and more chances. And so Paul was this person of, of influence at a young age. Uh, and one just kind of example of this is that when the church just was getting started and there was the very first martyr, so the first person who said, I'm following Jesus and this is the good news of Jesus and this is the story of Jesus, the first person that died for doing that was a guy named Steve or Stephen. And when the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the time were literally killing Stephen, they were stoning him for his faith in Jesus and the good news that Jesus lived and embodied and, and shared and declared. When Stephen was being killed by these men, these religious leaders, they were laying their coats down at, at that point, Saul, later known Paul, Saul's feet, as a way of saying, like, you have sign-off on this. You're granting us permission. You're signing off on this, and you're a leader. You're an influence. So at a young age, 
Paul was a person of influence, and he meets Jesus as radically transformed, but he writes a ton about grace throughout the New Testament. One of the places is Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. So Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and, and this is like, like Romans, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, is Paul writing, and it's just, it's just deep theology the whole way through. Um, it's like all of the things that are true, and there's a little bit of story woven in there, but it's a lot of just true, and it, theology and doctrine, and, and Paul's writing over and over and over throughout this really meaningful and significant book of Romans. In chapter 11, he's writing about how, how God has chosen some people, and he says this in chapter 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Here he's using the word grace. And if it's chosen by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. He's saying there are some people that God has chosen to call his own, his own people. And he's chosen them by, and here, here's what he chooses, by grace. Undeserved favor. So Paul is writing here, and he's using this term grace to be an undeserved favor. They didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, he goes on in the second sentence and says, if it was by something they had done, by works, then that actually wouldn't be grace. So he's defining the word simply by saying it's not this. It's not something that's done. And so what Paul is laying out here is that God chooses people by grace. And the understanding of grace is that it's not how well you've done, which Paul had done really well. It's also not how poorly you've done, so what you haven't done. It's not based on works, whether good or bad, whether you've overexcelled or you've deeply failed. It's neither one of those. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. Chosen without any resume, without any accomplishment. He goes on and he says this in, in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 8 uh, through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, while this is explaining grace, this is also, these three verses, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. If you're new to following Jesus, these are great ones to just wrap your arms around, embed deeply in your mind, to, to memorize, to keep close. and to go. This, this is helpful to come back to over and over and over again. For it is by grace that we have been saved. And this is why it's so helpful to hold on to a verse like this. Because our human kind of wiring, our human inclination, just how we're created, is we want to earn something and be valued and loved for what we've done. We just, that's just automatic for most of us, not everybody, but for most of us, that's where we gravitate. And this verse, this truth pulls us back and it says, no, it's not based on what we've done. It's just simply that God loves us, that he's chosen us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of anything that you've done. Because as soon as we've done something and say, God's chosen me because I've filled in the blank, Paul believed that one of the reasons God's chosen him is because he advanced and was so learned and educated and above his peers that why would God not choose him? And so he had to go through this whole reprogramming, transformation, healing of all the wrong, untrue things that he believed. And to go, no, God actually loves me just based on unmerited favor. He just chose to love me. So we need to be reminded of this over and over because it's so easy for us to slip into thinking like, I've done well and so now God's loved me. The other reverse of that is that when we do something wrong, when we make a mistake, whether it's something that God has set before us or we've set before ourselves and we've failed to meet some expectation or we've done something that we promised ourselves we would stop doing or that we would never do, that we become a different person for a moment and act in a way that's inconsistent with who we want to be or who we know God wants us to be. And then what happens is we go to a faraway dark place 
and we run away and we start believing that there's no way that God could love us. There's no way that God would choose us. Because if he chose us once and we still did that, then why would he come back and give us another chance? And it's because of grace. It's because of unmerited favor. That the God of the universe, embodied through Jesus, fully God and fully human, lives this message, delivers this message, speaks this message, models this message. But there's nothing that we can do to earn it and there's nothing we can do to lose it. Unmerited favor. Something else happens um, with grace is we learn that it's freely given, that it's a gift that we can't, we can't earn, that we can't get ourselves. But it actually has a transformative power in us the longer we let this sit on our heart and our mind. And you know, one of my favorite uh, authors is, is Dallas Willard, and I quote him often. He's been deeply influential in my life. Um, but he says this about grace. Grace is God acting in one's life to accomplish what one cannot do or will not do on one's own. Grace, listen to this again, let this sink in for a moment. Grace is God acting in one's life to accomplish what one cannot or will not do on one's own. Let me say it in in just kind of common, my way of saying it. God does stuff in our life, which is called grace, that allows us to do stuff we can't do or wouldn't do. I'm actually able to be a person because of grace that I wouldn't be on my own. You are actually able to be a certain kind of person because of God working in your life called grace that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. When we think of grace as only unmerited favor as a stamp, a label, a status, we miss the transformative work of what grace actually does when it's alive and active in our life. When we are in a place where we know and experience God's love based not on what we've earned or accomplished or not based on our our being excluded because of our failures, when we realize that God has just chosen us and loves us, that does something to us. It doesn't leave us the same. We become different people. We know this even on a relational level. When we have a friend who doesn't drop us when we betray them, when we fail them, when we let them down, there's something that bonds us closer, that we know that we're loved not based on what we do or don't do. God's grace in our life transforms us and it allows us to be different people. And again, we see this in Paul as well. He says this in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 9. And what he's writing about here, Paul, is he's writing about what he describes as his thorn in the flesh. Now, it'd be nice if we could have Paul show up here today and tell us exactly what that was. Because my guess is that even if you've never heard that term before, thorn in my flesh, um, you can probably fill in the blank for what yours is. You know what it is. You have an idea of, okay, what is this thing that I, I wish I could get out of my life? It might be a temptation. It might be a struggle. It might be a, an addiction or a habit or a behavior that you just can't change. You wish you could get it out of your life and distance yourself from it. But it just is, is still it. Paul had one of those, but we don't know exactly what it was. Most believe it was some kind of temptation or a, or a struggle. And what he's writing about here in the midst of this letter to this church that is struggling in all sorts of different ways is he's saying, I'm struggling too. I've got a struggle too that I wish God would take away. And then he says in verse nine, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will, and this is Paul talking. He just quoted what God said to him. Then he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
one of the things Paul's saying so much in just this little verse, but he's, one of the things he's saying is that I have struggles. I'm not perfect. I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the man I think God deserves. I'm way down here. I'm still messed up. I still struggle. I still have temptation. Whatever it is, this thing won't get out of my life. And yet what God says to me is that he still loves me. He still calls me his. And I'm still called and I'm still chosen and I'm still valuable and I'm still his child, even though I've struggled with this. And so I'm able to step forward and still do many things that he wants me to do. I'm still able to love and influence people. And Paul has so much that he's done. But he says, what I'm able to do is say, I'm still an imperfect man, but look at God at work in me. His grace is at work in me, allowing me to do and accomplish things that I could not do on my own. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my flaws, in my weakness, in my frailty, in my humanness. And then he says, later on, or earlier he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul, over and over, is pointing to God is doing something in me. God is doing something in me. He has undeserved and unmerited favor that he's extended on me. But it's not just that. It actually works itself out, and I become a different person. I've been transformed because of God's power at work in me, God's grace in me. It's a gift. We can't earn it. It has transformative power in us. It's a, I think it's helpful to understand it in distinction to another word as well. Um, it would be very easy to merge a grace and another word that's similar is mercy. Uh, and I, I think it's helpful to, to distinguish these two, two words to mean they, they, they have different meanings. They, they, they have some overlap, but they're not the same. And so to be very careful with what we say and what we mean and certainly how we understand scripture is that uh, we're saved by, by grace. We're not saved by, by mercy. We're saved by grace through faith, not, not mercy. That a quick definition just to distinguish these is, is grace is un, under something, uh, getting something we don't deserve, undeserved favor. We get something that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something that we do deserve. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Mercy is, is getting, not getting something that we do deserve. Um, and it, it's helpful because I think grace has a very different transformative power in our life than does mercy. And mercy may be an easy way to think about it. Is a, um, you, you could see this very easily in a, in a court setting when we really clear what somebody deserves. And if, if, a, if a judge has mercy on somebody, they don't give something, somebody a penalty that they, they do. I've, I've heard stories of, of friends who they're part of their journey of God showed up and, and didn't give them a penalty that they literally in court knew they deserved but didn't get it and it opened up a new, a new path for them. That's mercy. I, uh, we, have a, we have a story in the Osborne home that we tell pretty frequently and just laugh about. Um, it's a costly story, but it's a funny story. It, uh, but it demonstrates the difference between grace and mercy really clear in, in our home. Um, our, our basement used to be the space where we would watch TV together and play games together and play video games and kind of had couch down there and all the toys when the kids were younger and would play down there. And that's where the kids would play uh, in, inside a, a lot of the time. Abby was walking through uh, when two of the three boys that I have that will remain nameless for now 
um, were playing, and she walked through and she said, you need to stop doing that. And what they were doing is they were battling with one another, and as, as boys do, and I would assume girls do as well, but I don't have daughters, they find different things to use as weapons, right? And so they had creative weapons at the time, and one of the boys, his weapon of choice or creation at the time was uh, a charging cord from an iPhone to the, to the wall socket box. No phone, no wall, just the cord and the box attached, and was whipping it around his head. And, and therefore, you know, I mean, just strategically in battle, that's good because you keep distance from your opponent and that kind of thing like that. That's a good, there's, I mean, that, that's good thinking, right? Like that's good instinct. Um, so Abby walks through and says, you need to stop doing that because that's going to come off and it's going to break something. And they said, yeah, you're right, wise mother. And okay, and she keeps walking through the room and goes upstairs and they put it down until she's out of the room and they pick it back up and start whirling around again. And, um, and this really, this thing happened. Like, Swinging that around, it detaches, right? And the box travels through the air and just as mom predicted, struck something. Um, again, this was a little while ago, but it struck a, uh, a flat screen plasma television. And uh, if you don't know what that is, uh, plasma used to be all the rage and um, you know, some families would say, hey, save up and look for sales and purchase one. Um, and have it be a kind of a prized possession in the family room. And uh, the thing about plasma, uh, different than some TVs, is that you can't crack them and still use them. Some TVs you can put a crack in. Plasma TVs, if there is a crack, the, the uh, TV magic air escapes and you can't, you can't watch anything. And so that happened, and when that happened, there was a scream that resulted in mom running back downstairs, said guilty child putting his face in the couch and remaining comatose. And dad was in a room right next to the television and I opened the door and I walked out and I saw one child on the bed, another child with a smirk on his face <laughs> and fear in his eyes, staring at me, staring at guilty child, staring at me, staring at guilty child. And I walked out and looked at the scene and took another step and looked and saw the television with a crack in it and then I went back into my small office and shut the door. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. And so in that situation, I don't know, I mean, if we could take a quick survey and say, what's the deserved punishment of that time? And I think, I'm just gonna make an assumption, but somewhere between 12 and 20 years of indentured servitude. Like that would be appropriate for that level of just offense and sin. And so that would be what is due. There's been a wrong done, a debt incurred. That is what's due. Mercy would be not getting that. Grace would be dad coming out of the room, seeing the broken television, looking at the obvious guilty child and saying, hey, um, let's go to Salt and Straw and you can get two scoops of whatever ice cream you choose in a waffle cone uh, and then we can go buy another TV. Now, that didn't happen. But also, I just need you to know I don't have any sons that are currently in jail or in indentured servitude or anything like that. When we've done something wrong and we feel it, say, to the level of just going comatose and burying our face, which we've, we've all done that at some point in our life, whether it's just between us and God or a beloved friend or family member, so we've done something to that level of guilt where we've known I've done something wrong. And then to be treated to ice cream in that moment, at, at, that, at that point of self-pity and guilt and, and, let's be honest, shame, 
does something to us. It trans- when we're treated in that way, it changes us. It transforms us. Grace is intended to have that impact on our lives, not at one time when we say, I met Jesus, but every day and every hour and every moment since then to go, this is the way that Jesus treats me. This is the way that the God of the universe views me. We've looked at at verses from from Paul in the New Testament. If we step into the Old Testament and go back a little bit further, we actually get another angle on grace that I think is really, really valuable. There's a a verse in... uh, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verses 2. This is, let's say, an, an Old Testament take on grace that might be out of range a little bit. You haven't thought about it. So Proverbs is a, ver- is a, is a book about wisdom. It says this in chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Now, talking about wisdom and understanding, saying, hey, it's talking to a, a son, a young, a young man, completely unrelated to, to flinging power cords around in the house. This is just, you know, as a man growing up and, and, and living life, to be wise and understanding, to practice discretion, these things, the, the writer of Proverbs is saying, hold these close to you, keep them. And if you keep them, you will have more of the kind of life that God wants for you. Not only that, but they're gonna be an ornament to grace your neck. And the word grace there actually means to make you beautiful. They will, they will make you special and different. They will make you beautiful. And then there's another uh, place in, uh, in Psalm, Psalms, uh, what is it, 45, uh, 2. It says this, You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. This is a wedding poem or wedding song. So the idea is that it's a, it's a bride writing to her husband. And so she's not talking about lips of grace, meaning like you speak so well. She's saying like, you're hot. Like, that's what this is saying. They're anointed with grace. Like, you're attractive. Like, you're beautiful. There's an elegance to you. Like, I desire you. When I look at you, I desire you. You have a, your lips are worth looking at, and I'm looking forward to kissing them. Like, that's what's said. There's a beauty there. Grace is meant to say beauty. And then in uh, Psalms 145, uh, 103, sorry, 103 verses 8, 9, and 10. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. So grace has been used to describe something of beauty, of elegance, of being special. And then it's also used to describe God's character. Compassionate and gracious. Not always going to excuse, not pay for our sins. What it's saying here is it's saying not, not the label, unmerited favor that is put on us where sins are forgiven. It's, it's not just that. It's actually the character of God that actually treats us with grace. So grace is both the character of God that is meant to be something special and beautiful and unique and different, and it's the way that he treats us. The reason this is so important is because when we understand the full understanding of, of grace, we get that it's meant to be special, that we are called and viewed as special, that God himself is unique and has a unique character. But as grace describes his character, he also extends it to the way that he treats us. It's his character in action towards us. James Wilder says this. I think it'll be up on the screen. The Bible uses the word grace when talking about being special. In ancient cultures, the expression for receiving special treatment was to find grace, saying 
if I have found grace means if I am special to you. To be graced was to be granted special status in relationship to the great one. So when apostle writes grace to you, it means you're special. Grace means you're special. You're special. God is unique. God is described as gracious. God is described as beautiful. God extends that grace to us. And when he looks on us, he says, you're special. You're chosen. Not based on what you did yesterday that was so wonderful and great. And certainly not based on all the mistakes you made that you wish you hadn't made. But just because I see you and I choose you. And so what this does is understanding grace actually provides an answer to those questions that are constantly running through our mind faster than we can even be aware of. Of who am I? God says you're special. God extends grace to you because you're valuable. He actually says that you're beautiful, that you're worthy, that you're worth something to him. It answers the question of who am I? In God's eyes, I'm one deserving of his grace. He looks at me and says, I've granted it to you. He says, you get it. And then the second question is, how do my people act? By treating other people that same way. And Jesus modeled this for us over and over and over again. If you just look at the ones that were rejected by his own context, the most extreme is probably a leper. And Jesus did the things that were societally and culturally and even religiously frowned upon, barred. You were not allowed to do it. You were not allowed to go and touch a leper. Now, there's medical reasons for that, but there's also spiritual and relational and cultural reasons for that. And Jesus violated those norms in order to extend grace to a leper, to treat them as special and beautiful, even when they were disgusting to all those around them. Jesus treated them as different. And it's weird for us to consider the way that he treated children and how different it was than we view children today. But in the first century, in Jesus' time when he lived, the children were not viewed in the same way that they are today. Today, many parents, many people, reorganize their entire lives around their children. That would have been, that would never have entered in the mind of a parent of, of, a, of a child in the first century. The, they, they actually weren't that valuable until they were able to contribute to the family industry, whatever that might be. And certainly the boys were more valuable than the girls because they could do more and were worth more and all those kinds of things. And so when children ran up to Jesus and the disciples shooed them away, that was just the norm. And Jesus did the very opposite thing. He said, no, 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 let the children come to me, which would have looked silly and different. That wasn't like a thing in that culture. We look at grandpas in public and how children hang out around them and we kind of look at that as that's, that's cute and normal. That would not have been normal in that time. He valued those that were not valuable. He extended grace to them and said they were special. To women, second-class citizens. In Jesus' time in the first century, women were second-class citizens. Men had the power, had the influence, had the legal authority. All, unbalanced doesn't begin to describe the relationship. When we talk about equality today, it would have blown their minds. They could not have fathomed it. And yet Jesus stepped into that space and begin to violate the norms and the assumptions and say, no, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite women into our new thing that's happening, this kingdom kind of life, this new community where we're moving and we're traveling from town to town. Women are gonna play a significant role in that. Women are not gonna be pushed to the side. 
When a woman who would be easy to reject in this context puts oil on my feet, I'm gonna honor her and not shoo her away and shame her. Jesus extended grace and said, you're special. And to those who already thought they were special, to the Pharisees who said, I'm educated and I deserve a position of influence and I am special. He said, no, no, I'm not gonna treat you based on your educational prowess. I'm gonna ask you deep questions that, that make you question the direction of your life and the values that you have and the beliefs that you have. I'm gonna question you and, and shock you a bit. If you're a person of means and you come and you ask me, what's the key to life? I'm gonna tell you to sell everything and come and follow me, to let go of what you think makes you special and let me be the one that makes you special. And to those closest to him that he spent time with and talked to, a guy like Zacchaeus, who everybody would have rejected, he said, hey, we're gonna hang out in your house tonight. And he was transformed by grace extended to him in that, in that moment. And his closest disciples, who are a ragtag bunch of people that would never have gotten along or been in the same club in that context, in that society, he bonds them together. And then he picks one of those 12 who opened his mouth the most and put his foot in it the most. And he said, Peter, you're going to be my guy that people centuries from now keep knowing about and laughing about. But I'm going to extend grace to you over and over and over again. And when do you fail? I'm going to invite you back in. And not just invite you back in, but I'm going to build my church on you. You're going to be the one that's made the most mistakes. Wow. Done? I think I'm off. Try again. We're good. Go, go. Can you hear me? Good. Amazing. You fixed it, Ethan. Way to go. He just wanted a little attention back there. He's like, hey, let me show you what I can do. Um, Jesus modeled for us what this looks like. And so as we think about this today, of how we practice grace, it's, it's multidirectional. And, and we first have to practice grace between us and God. That we have to regularly go, yeah, this is who you say I am. I'm not who I've been telling myself I am because of what I did last Friday night. That's not who I am. That's not my primary identity. You decide who I am and declare who I am. I just did something great and got promoted. I just made some great accomplishment. I've got everybody in my life telling me how wonderful I am, but that's not actually who I'm. You, God, said I was special even before I even accomplished that. We practice grace by receiving grace from God regularly. And we give that grace to ourselves, not anything else that this world has to offer, but the good news of grace from Jesus. And then as we look out around us and we look at those that are closest to us, the, those that we're in deepest relationship with, those that we have the most to lose, those that say and look at us and go, when they disappoint us or betray us or let us down, when something happens that we actually can say, no, I wanna extend grace to you and I'm gonna still view you as, as special even though we've hit a bump and we're struggling. To those that are different than us, that we don't know as particularly well, to those that we live in the same city with us, that we know, think, and behave, and believe drastically different than us. One of the ways that we can practice grace, and it might sound overly simplistic, is by our words, our facial expressions, and our body language. That when you encounter somebody who you know is different than you, imagine how Jesus treated lepers and children and women. That you couldn't, a leper couldn't read on Jesus' face that, oh, I don't smell good. Oh, my, 
my shawl just dropped from my face and he can see what my skin is really like and his face doesn't freak out and change. That when we see people that we know are very, very different than us and maybe are even offensive to us, that we guard the way that we respond to them and what that has to do with how we think about them. And when we look at somebody and we make an assessment or a judgment call based on their outward appearance or their bumper sticker or something they say or something they have about them, and we make assumptions, what if our assumptions are that person is special and beautiful to the God that created them? What if that's our first thing that we think about them? And then we let second come up of like, oh, we probably think differently on this. Or they probably made very different life choices. And we just set that aside for a minute. And go, no, no, no. The defining thing about them is not how they dress, not how they speak, not how they behave, not how they believe. But the defining thing about them is how the creator God of the universe views them. And everything I understand from scripture and everything we see modeled in the life of Jesus is he treats them as beautiful and valuable and special, that he extends grace to them, waiting for them to receive it. And we get to be a part of that. We get to model and treat them and extend that same thing to them. But for many of us, it will start in our minds. It will start in the way that we think about another person. And that we actually have some control over. And so when we say we are a people who practice grace, it's got to start between us and God. It has to extend to those of us in our community and our family and our friends and those that we trust. Those sometimes are the most costly to extend grace to because it really does cost us in relationship at times. And then to the world around us that we know is very different, that we get to be little lights, little beacons of the good news of Jesus that says, yes, world, you are valuable and beautiful and special. One of the ways that we remind ourselves of this over and over is by coming to this table. It's the practical, tangible, tasteable experience of coming and meeting Jesus again and again and receiving his grace again and again and again. And so what we're going to do, as we always do, is we're going to continue to sing and to worship. I'm going to pray and invite you to come to this table. And if you, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 say, if you've received the grace from God, if you've been saved by that grace through faith, not of the works that anybody can boast, but because Jesus offered it freely, that we do not deserve it, but he's decided that we're worth it and extends it to us, then you're invited to come and to take this juice that represents his blood shed on the cross and a little cracker that represents his body broken. And so Jesus, we come today. We come today and every single one of us can say that we are in need of your grace we are in need of your forgiveness. And that, that something happens inside of us that we can't quite explain or quantify. But there's a transforming work that you do in us when we remind ourselves and sing of and receive your grace. That God, way beyond our understanding, you choose to look at us and say that we are your daughters and your sons, that we are valuable in your eyes, we're beautiful and we're worth Jesus to you. Would that sink deep into our hearts and souls? Would it transform us? Would it begin to alter and change and morph our character so that we become more like you? That our responses to the people that you allow us to come in contact with and engage with would be instantaneous, automatic responses of grace to those around us. As we come and receive 
the juice and the bread now, Jesus. Would you, would you give us your grace yet again, yet again? Thank you.